Welcome to the Carl Bart Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is Dr. Mark James Edwards. Dr. Edwards holds a PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary. He's an adjunct professor at Princeton Theological Seminary and the director of youth ministry at Nassau Presbyterian Church in Princeton, New Jersey. He's also the author of Christ's Time, The Gospel According to Carl Bart and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Dr. Edwards, thank you so much for joining me. It's quite an honor. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this one for a while. I, as I said off air, I really loved your book. Um, but before we jump into that, I was hoping that we could start to get to know you through uh, Beyond Malibu. You have this little story in, in your book about uh, becoming or coming to faith at Beyond Malibu. And um, I, I've been on Beyond Malibu before, so I was like, oh, we should, <laughs> I, I want to hear what his experience was like. Um, so before we get into that, what was Beyond like? <laughs> Well, I love Beyond Malibu. I'll actually be up there next week. I'm taking uh, 20 students and, and adults from Princeton on, uh, on a mountaineering trip, two different mountaineering trips, actually. And so I'm looking forward to being back up there. It's a place that, that I love taking people to. It's a place I love going to. Uh, I've guided up in those mountains and spent summers on staff and leadership. My wife was a mountaineering guide and we met through that program. Uh, but even before all that, it does stand really in many ways at the genesis of my faith in Christ. I grew up in a Christian home. My dad's a New Testament professor. and uh, But you know, Christianity was not really something as I went through junior high and high school that I was in that I was interested in and I was decreasingly interested in it. And, and of course I wanted to do more fun things and that involved generally mountain biking and, and girls. Um, but after my freshman year of college, I was looking for opportunities to get to Colorado so I could get serious about high altitude mountain biking and, and I wound up at a Young Life camp of all places as their mountain bike wrangler, as their mountain bike guide. And I thought this was awesome. I got to bike all the time. I had a bike shop at my disposal. Uh, the Colorado Rockies right on the Monarch Crest Trail. Fantastic world-class biking. Uh, but I was around all these other high schoolers that were cleaning bathrooms, doing dishes, uh, jobs that were not nearly as thrilling or exciting. And yet somehow they had a more, you know, more vibrant uh, experience. They were just full of life. And, and I was just impressed. And, and I remember asking one of them, you know, why are you doing this? Like, I'm a mountain bike guide. It's, it's a no brainer why I'm here. But he just said, you know, it's a, it's a great way to serve the Lord. And it, to me, that was an inconceivable statement that somebody would do something that wasn't fun in, in my eyes, uh, for the sake of God, uh, that was compounded even to a greater degree when, when one of my colleagues, Jonah Werner, he was a Buena Vista local and they just hung out at the young life camps. He was going on this mountaineering trip. He was going with all his high school friends. Uh, they were, had, were all graduating together. This was a clan that had knew each other for a long time. And Jonah just three days before the trip, it's like, I think you should take my spot. I think you should take this, 
uh, place and go up to Canada and go mountaineering. And, you know, that was even more inconceivable that somebody would sacrifice and give up something like that. Uh, but I went, these guys were all punks, literally. I mean, shaved heads, mohawks, blue hair, red hair, chains, steel toes. I'd never been around people like this. Uh, they were outrageous. They were fun. They were Christian. They took their faith seriously. And that whole experience combined with the beauty of the, the coast mountains, just the intensity of the wilderness experience, uh, a 24-hour solo where I was just, you know, by myself uh, looking at glaciers and granite, uh, that just convinced me in, in a deep and uh, somewhat rational way that actually following God is the adventure. That's where life to the fullest is. And, and that whole experience just showed me something that I had never seen before. And in many ways, I feel like I'm still on that trip. Uh, you know, I came home, I took a shower and I eventually cut my hair a few years later, but uh, I still feel like I'm on that trip and, mm -hmm. and going to seminary and, and reading BART and writing a book. And this week I'm down in Appalachia. We're doing home repair, uh, putting up steps and siding and, and uh, fixing roofs. And, and I still feel like I'm on that, that adventurous trip where you're not quite sure what's going to happen next, but it's all good. That's awesome. Um, yeah, we have quite a bit of overlap. Um, I, I volunteered with Young Life and Wildlife when I lived in Washington State. Um, so I've actually been to a Jonah Warner show. Um, went to Beyond Malibu. My wife worked as a, uh, an assistant to a youth pastor in Spokane. And uh, she's gone on the trip four times. I, I told her today that I was interviewing you and that you had gone on, uh, on Beyond. And that's where you became a Christian. And she said, make sure you tell him that you only went once and I went four times. So there you go. Um, <laughs> uh, but I'm with you. It's uh, it. It, it's a trip that changes you. Um, I, I, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done as someone who uh, is not typically in wonderful shape. Uh, but when you come back and you feel like you did something very, very hard, but very worthwhile. And so anyway, uh, yeah, I just wanted to start there. But uh, I'm wondering, so what, what took you from those mountains to discovering Karl Barth? Well, it's it's a journey. I, I got really interested in, in mountaineering and climbing after college. I just wanted to, to climb. I moved to Seattle. I had a professor at Whitworth that was involved with the intelligent design movement uh, regarding questions of origins of life. And so I interned at a place called Discovery Institute and then ended up spending a few years, uh, did a lot of climbing in the Cascades and loved it. But after a few years, just felt like I was ready for something new. And I had been around a, a bunch of academics. A number of them had multiple PhDs. And as I saw this debate over neo-Darwinian uh, natural selection and intelligent design play out over the course of the years, I basically decided that the intelligent design folks had won the debate. Uh, and I could spend the rest of my life trying to say that and, and deal with the media and, and newspapers, uh, or I could kind of move on and do my own thing. And, and I felt like I was ready to do a, move on. So the question was where to go. 
and I had a lot of student or friends in my student years that had come to Princeton. After college, it was the last place I wanted to go. My, my dad had been there as a student in the 60s. My sister uh, and her husband came in the 90s. Uh, a lot of my colleagues, uh, ex-girlfriends had come to, to Princeton. So it was the last place I wanted to go. And I remember at one point, visiting my sister in Princeton and just looking around and just feeling like, oh, this is a disease that I'm going to catch, you know. <laughs> uh, but eventually, you know, at, at the point I, I came to where I wanted to study philosophy, I wanted to study theology, I wanted to be exposed to biblical studies, and, and Princeton's just an ideal spot for that. You, you can crisscross all those questions and all those departments and all those schools of thought. And and with the financial aid, we couldn't turn it down. So we spent a year traveling the world, blew all our savings and showed up to Princeton poor and got scholarships and stipends. What did you do your, your PhD on? Well, I, I went through three years of MDiv and, and really in the middle of those years, uh, people were talking about BART right when I got to town, but I couldn't make sense. All they'd say, you know, Bart's yes is Bart's no, and things like that. And I didn't really understand what that meant. Uh, I was taking philosophy classes. I was taking biblical theology, biblical studies. I was over at the university doing studying stuff there. And then I got into these Bruce McCormick classes. And here was a thinker who had a clarity, a rigor, a scope that really was what I was hoping to find in town. And so I just kept signing up for Bruce McCormick classes. Well, Bruce, as probably most of your listeners will know, is, is a world-class Bart scholar. And I tried to argue against Bruce. I tried to argue against Bart once I found out that's where Bruce was getting his stuff from. And then I realized, oh, wait, no, I've lost. This is grand. Uh, sign me up. So at the end of my MDiv, I really wanted just to study keep reading philosophy, keep studying uh, epistemology, uh, ethics, things like that. But mm -hmm. I also wanted to keep reading BART. And Princeton was just a great place to that. And I'm fortunate and grateful that I was able to stay. And I eventually uh, just honed in on BART's treatment of time and eternity. I remember reading as a freshman in college, Boethius, The Consolation of Philosophy, that in many ways is, is the other half of the, of the coin to the beyond Malibu experience was uh, thinkers like Socrates and Boethius that, that were just giving a different side of the, the Christian faith than I think I had appreciated before. But Boethius has this definition of eternity is, as eternity is the tota salmo et perfectio possessio of interminabilis vitae, the, the total simultaneous and perfect possession of, of unending life. And and when I read Bart's treatment on time and eternity, you just see him echoing Boethius, but totally scrubbing, remixing uh, this definition and just doing really weird things with it. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's like he's arguing that Jesus is the possessor of eternal life. And like this was just dumbfounding to me. Uh, and, and I wanted to try and sort this out. And so that's what I got to, to spend a few years working on and, and bashing my head against and, and cranking through in my little cubicle of the library. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the final year of my, of my doctoral program, 
Bruce invited me to co-teach a systematics theology, a systematic theology course with him. So he would take 12 lectures. I'd take 12 lectures. And this was the required class for MDivs. It was kind of big. And, and so right as I was wrapping up the dissertation, I got that opportunity. And that's the genesis of these, this book. Those are the, the 12 lectures that I gave with some music on the side. Yeah, that's uh, one of the more interesting things about this book as opposed to other Bart books. Uh, but you have uh, like a playlist in it and like in between paragraphs, like, hey, listen to this section of this song. I don't think I've ever read a book like it. Um, so this is, you played this music during your lectures, I'm taking it. So how was that received by, I guess, the students that were, were there? What'd you say? They got a kick out of it. It was yeah. fun. A lot of those students are, are, are from uh, or close to kind of my generation. And, and those were songs that they knew. And, and it just, it was, it was fun. It, it added some life. And yeah, I haven't read every, I haven't read every book that's out there, but I, I'm pretty sure this is the first systematic theology that has a soundtrack. And I don't really know of another book that has uh, a play along soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Uh, it makes for a fun read. Um, I was, I was telling you that it was really helpful to me personally. I, I find that um, I think it's probably just from my background. I come from this like conservative evangelical background um, where Bart was sort of the uh, like the bo the boogeyman. Um, you can't really talk talk about him. Like my undergraduate during the four years, I don't remember hearing Bart's name once. That sort of thing. You do this wonderful job of like through each of the doctrines, going through sort of different positions that people have held, whether it's uh, Augustine or or Calvin or, or something like that, and then showing kind of Bart's difference. I find often that I like I come to. This, the Bart conversation and I have to be like fill in the, the gaps a lot <laughs> to say like, okay, well, how, how would this be different from, you know, what, what I learned when I became a Christian, you know, kind of that kind of thing. Whereas you do a, I, I felt really helped by you being like, here are the typical stances. I'm like, oh yeah, that, that, that's, that was my first four years of, of Bible college. Oh, okay. Now I see where this is, this is different and why this actually might be more helpful. Um, so yeah, that's that's the bit that I found. Uh, if honestly, if I if, if someone was asking to get into Bart's theology, I would probably start here. Uh, I would probably give them this book first. That's as high of a praise as I can give it. Well, thanks. I, I really owe that in many ways to Bruce McCormick. You know, he we had two lectures a week, so he'd take one, I'd take the other. He's this historical uh, theologian of history of doctrine, and so he would give these just beautiful and they they deserve to be published on their own terms um history of each doctrine and mm -hmm. and the genesis and kind of the development through the middle ages and then what the reformation has to offer but generally you know as he's sifting through each and any doctrine he's really showing where the difficulties in the history of interpretation reside so he would do that on a a monday i believe i'd get to show up on a wednesday right mm -hmm. and and the whole problem would be all set up and i could do a little bit of summary on on some calvin or some aquinas uh to provide a foil but the thing that attracted me to bart was just that there was this deep systematic philosophical rigor uh cranking through these traditional doctrines and problems and to me bart just had solution after solution 
to problem after problem. Mm -hmm. and, and so the course wasn't supposed to be about BART, but I just couldn't help it because you either get stuck with these problems and say, well, I'm, I'm going to only think in the 16th century, or I'm only going to think in the third century, or I'm only going to think in the 12th century. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're in a different century. And to me, Bart can, can speak to the problems that we have. And it was just so much fun to get pitched these problems that I think Bart just hits home runs on. Awesome. Well, uh, as you said, I mean, the, the book is a series of lectures. You do mention, uh, you do have a chapter covering eternity, but you also, as you said, did your PhD on your dissertation on, uh, on, Barton eternity. So how about we start there? I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit about uh, Bart's take on eternity. Yeah, thank you. Well, again, this, this definition that Boethius has in the fifth book of the consolation of philosophy, eternity is the total simultaneous and perfect possession of unending life. And Boethius is in prison. He's wrestling with what's the point of any of this? Has God, uh, destined me to suffer in jail? Does my life matter? Is there fate? Is there freedom? And somehow he decides that this, uh, this, this understanding of, of the eternal eternity of God offers genuine consolation. And lady philosophy helps guide him there to remember who he is. He's forgotten who he is, she says. Hmm. Um, this definition basically becomes normative. Thomas Aquinas affirms it. The question is, how do you justify it? And the standard route of justifying eternity and our knowledge of it is to start with time, decide that God must not be temporal because temporal things change, temporal things are complex, temporal things fade away. God can't be like that. God is lasting. God is enduring. God must not be temporal. God must be timeless. And so you start negating elements of time as you build a metaphysics upward to an eternity of immutability, uh, total simplicity, and ultimate perfection. Hmm. That's a natural theology. That's a, building a stairway to heaven. Uh, Calvin does this. Augustine does this. Aquinas does this. This is more or less normative. Uh, Charles Hodge, kind of great Princeton theologian, is all on board with this project. Bart wants to do something totally different and reside uh, or locate our, our knowledge of God uh, in, in revelation alone. It turns out that that revelation is not propositional primarily. It's not just statements of facts about a, a divine being. Um, it's not intuited through rationality. You don't gain it via physics and metaphysics, as did Aristotle, you encounter the self-disclosing God who is Jesus Christ. Turns out, you know, Bart takes John 1 pretty seriously. Uh, the Logos, Christ is the Logos, the Word of God. So revelation is Christ. It's Jesus. It's this person. It's this life living out who God is, disclosing God to us, uh, teaching us, but teaching us not just in word and fact, but in life and act. Mm. And, and so Bart uh, will start not with eternity per se, but with really, in many ways, Trinity. 
the, tri the triune life of God that's disclosed through Jesus Christ. And so that's where I start in the book. Bart has a, a variety of ways he can talk about Trinity. This is one of the things Bart does. He will, he will use a vocabulary to, de to describe a problem. Later on, whether it's 100 pages or 1,000 pages, he will adopt a different vocabulary to describe that same problem so that his solution to that problem doesn't ultimately reside on one set of terms and vocabulary. Mm. One of the ways in which Bart talks about <laughs> Trinity is just Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son being other uh, than the Father, the Father being other than the Son, the, the, the Spirit being other to both of those others and uniting them across their otherness. Uh, and so that's why this, this, you know, this is kind of why I had to bring in the Red Hot Chili Peppers. This God uh, is in perpetual, eternal, consistent uh, state or, or act of giving away God's own divinity, uh, a threefold give it away, give it away, give it away, give it away now. Father to the Son, Son to the Father, Spirit to the Son through the Father, uh, Son to the Father through the Spirit. Uh, ancient theology has a notion of perichoresis, indwelling, mutual indwelling, mutual giving. Basically, it's, it's a threefold give it awayness. Bart has another way of talking about Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is God. God again, God a third time. And that's so simple. <laughs> God one time, God a second time, God a third time. All God, God three times. There's a temporality in that triune relationship. And this is one thing that ancient, classic, medieval, reformed metaphysics could never gain. Simplicity, immutability, reign supreme. There could be no temporality, no change from this to that. No, no movement from one to another. The divinity, the divine being is, is an antithetical, allergic to such things. Bart builds that and pulls that out really of that triune uh, relationship, that triune intergivingness, that triune ongoing uh, love, covenant, commitment, gracious life that, that is the divine party effectively. And so Trinity uh, is then the, the ongoing, reaffirmed, ever manifesting uh, God that generates eternity by ever promising, committing, reaffirming, willing, confirming, this is the God who will be faithful in, in giving away divine love, grace to another. And, and here we're still talking about homoousius, God within God, God to God, God of God, true light of true light, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so to go back to that Boethian definition, that, that total simultaneous perfect possession of unending life, that is the triune relationship that we have access to, noetic access to, we know about it through the, through the, the life of Christ who lives out kind of his corner of the triune triangle in time, in history, in Galilee. You, uh, you, you mentioned that uh, a, a bit earlier about uh, how Bart sees Revelation as uh, exclusively, I mean, really 
the big thing is that it, it comes from Jesus, the person of Jesus, not not propositional. Um, so I'm wondering, you have, you have a chapter on Revelation. Um, how does this view, I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on that view and how it might relate to other interpretations today. Um, as I said, in, in your book, you, you sort of do offer uh, sort of different theological views and then show why Bart's view really solves a lot of, of problems. How does Bart's view of Revelation sort of solve the problem of Revelation? Well, you know, you got to go to the great minds. I go to the Beastie Boys on there, uh, <laughs> you know. So what you want, where'd you get your information from? Huh? The, the question about Revelation is where do we get our information about God from? Do we get about it through reason? Do we get about do we, do we get our knowledge of God from studying physics? Uh, do we get it from political leaders who are divine instantiations, right? Do we get it from culture and art? Do we get it from the latest theology pouring forth from academia? Do we get it from Mozart? Christian theological tradition has always give, given a very privileged place to metaphysics, uh, to inferences from below to above based on observations about time, change, motion. Aristotle, Aquinas, even Calvin, they, they're deriving in some ways a definition of eternity by negating what we understand through physics. Bart, again, taking Revel John 1 seriously, and, and even, you know, the final book of the Bible, Revelation, seriously, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and was and is to come. That's God disclosing. And again, Jesus isn't just teaching us about God in kind of an academic or prophetic way where he seems to know more, but he's giving us the right statements. Jesus is living out the divine life in, with, and for this world. Mm. Uh, and so to understand who God is, you have to look at the, at the life of Jesus, not just the teachings of Jesus, not just one statement about Jesus, but the whole, the whole, the whole life of Jesus that we have four witnesses to in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. American Christian theology is really jammed right now on revelation being uh, propositional statements about the Bible that are eternally and statically true. American Christian theology, arguably not Christian, is very jammed on the fact that culture and politics and God guns in America are where we learn about Jesus, where we learn about God. Bart's era of Germany in the in the teens and the 20s and 30s was jammed on a very similar problem. German culture, German politics, German art, German ideas, German supremacy were disclosures of divine revelation. And to this, Bart just says, beep, nine. <laughs> And, and we haven't had that moment yet in America where we've had people just say, no, this flag is not God. This constitution is not God. This president is not a divine revelation. We've had, we've had 
presidents who will claim to be divine revelations, we haven't had somebody, a theologian with the, with the depth rigor that, that Bart is able to bring to the situation, that Bonhoeffer is also able to bring to the situation, mm-hmm. uh, who say no. And so I think Bart, and, and, and I, I think I'm not the only one, uh, think that Bart just has something so deeply needed here in America, uh, just as it's needed worldwide uh, throughout, throughout the many forms uh, of what we call the Christian faith. Hmm. You mentioned uh, sort, of, sort of revealing these false false doctrines, false, uh, false theologies, false hopes, um, throughout, uh, especially America right now, <laughs> that that's kind of a segue to, you have this chapter on sin. So as re- Christ reveals himself, um, it makes human beings realize sort of the, what reality is and, and who God is and who they are. Um, and you have this description of sin in your book, but first, before we get to Bart's description, I'm wondering if you could walk through, you have uh, Augustine's view on sin and Schleiermacher's view on sin. Could you, uh, explain those before we hop into Bart? Briefly. (laughs) Yeah, I will try. Augustine's doctrine of sin is, is massive, but I think it's fair to say that Augustine has a, a very moral understanding of sin, uh, Sin has to do with our inability to be good. Uh, sin is, is largely revolving around goodness and morality. Uh, and for, for Augustine, another key element is that, that that sin is passed along. It's inherited basically through the biological mechanism of, of human reproduction through sex and birth. Had Adam and Eve not sinned, says Augustine, our first parents, they would not have passed along sin to the next generation. Because they did sin, Cain and Abel inherited biologically effectively. And so, so yes, Augustine has a, a moral understanding of good, uh, moral understanding of sin, but he has also a, a fundamentally in some ways a biological understanding of sin. Mm-hmm. Schleiermacher wants to do something, I think, a little more, you know, for, for, for lack of a better term, modern. He wants to move away from a literal reading of Genesis. He gives a social and a psychological understanding of sin. Sin is atmospheric in cultural communities. It's passed along through individual and corporate acts. It's a mindset. Jesus doesn't have that mindset, doesn't have it transcends that, that cultural um, milieu, has the God consciousness, and is able to act purely. Bart wants to do something, I think, far bigger than both of these. And in some ways, immorality is not a problem for Bart. In some ways, even what we think of as sin, as bad stuff, is not a problem for Bart. The problem for Bart is that we are really distant from God. We are really separate from God. We are really other from God. God has a, a, an otherness in God's own being. It's a homoousius, homo but we are heterousius. We are not of divine substance. 
God wants to be in relationship with others, wants to spin this triune relationship out, creates others, they don't even need to be good others. God is just is spinning and creating others out so that God can be in relationship with them and demonstrate love and grace. I make a lot of this little word in John 1, uh, pros, you know, en arche, hein hologos kai hologos hein pros ton theon. In the beginning was the word, and the word was, everybody says with God, pros ton theon was toward God. Pros means toward. It's a vector. Paul's epistle was sent pros the Romans, was sent toward the Romans. Mm-hmm. Pros means you're moving. Bart has this moving pros towardness within the, within the triune relationship. That's a homoousius prosness, right? Yeah. The son being moving toward the father as divine substance, as divine being himself. In the, in the desire to have relationship with others, God spins out other others that are non-divine. They, they can be good. They can be hostile. They can be alien. They can be close. They can be far, but they're not God. And for me, in many ways, I think Bart has a, has a deeper understanding of sin. The, the primary problem is an ontological one. We are just other than God. And even if we're good, we're still other than God. And the real problem that Bart wants to solve isn't how to get us good. The real problem Bart wants to solve is how to get us in relation to that divine being and living in that triune, perpetual, manifesting, give it awayness. Hmm. So I, I think Bart has a, a, a bigger, a deeper ontological understanding of sin than certainly Schleiermacher, from whom he's learned a lot and who he regards and, and has great respect, and even Augustine, whom he also regards and has high respect for. The other side of that coin, one of the things that uh, is revealed in Revelation is also justification. You have that in uh, as one of your chapters as well. Um, you walk through Aquinas and, uh, and Calvin on justification briefly before we jump into Bart. Could I have you uh, describe them, uh, their takes on justification? Gosh, this is like a final exam here. (laughs) You're doing great. You'll pass. I'm passing? All right. Yeah, Yeah, you know, (laughs) Catholic doctrines of justification are not simple. Thomas Aquinas is not simple. Again, I think it's fair to say that Thomas regards justification as a future potentiality that you can gain uh, if, you, or if you merit it by doing good works uh, that are supercharged through, by grace, through the sacraments, through the Eucharist. Uh, justification is a future potentiality. Calvin, you know, Luther, they want to reform this. Uh, it's not through actions and doings and works. It's through faith and believing and confession. Uh, justification is a present tense potentiality possibility maybe there's no difference but they want to move it into a present tense all you got to do is believe all you got to do is confess have faith and and you are justified Uh, you you will you yeah you are bart does something more radical again 
uh, he puts it in a past tense. You have been justified. While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, working from Romans 5, which Paul puts in the past tense, you have been justified. And so Bart sees justification not as a future potentiality, a present tense possibility, but as a historical past tense actuality. It has happened for all. The world, the world, not just all Christians, not just all humans, the world has been justified. How can that be? How is this? Well, Bart says, well, what is justification? It's the justice of God. Who's, who's in charge here? Well, God is the judge. Christ is the judge. Christ is the judge who presents himself as the one to be judged. Christ is the judge who judges himself instead of us, renders verdict, lays down the judgment. Christ is the judgment. Sin, otherness, hostility towards God shall fall upon me. I will take the consequences of that. I will be crucified. I will go to hell. I will damn myself to hell so that the humans, and so that the leaves, and so that the caterpillars, and so that the, this, the quasar stars out there, they don't have to go there. I will be the one who goes. And that's election. Christ has determined to elect himself to be the damned. And guess what? That's divine justice. You cannot question it. I mean, you can question it, but you can't do anything about it. It's been done. Christ is judge, judged, judgment, and instantiator of justice means that the world has been justified by, by divine decision, by divine determination, not by human acts, not by human mental states, not by dispositions, not by Christian communities, not by fancy little prayers and good music, but by the act of the crucified Christ alone. That's great. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I'll give you one more chapter from your book, and then I promise you, your, your test is over. Um, but your book is called Christ is Time. And obviously, uh, we, we chatted a little bit about this before, but the, uh, I mean, what a powerful, powerful chapter and statement from, from Bart. Um, could I have you explain what does it mean that Christ is time? Yes. Oh, thanks. The big question. Well, look, what is time? I mean, what, what is it? The great statement from Augustine, I know what time is if nobody asks me, <laughs> but if you ask me, I don't know what it is from the confessions. <laughs> Augustine in the confessions reasons that time is moving from the future through the present into the past. Makes sense. Go back to Boethius, Consolation of Philosophy. He argues time is going from the past through the present into the future. We have two pretty pretty prestigious Christian theologians who can't even decide which way time is going. <laughs> is it going to the left or the right, forward or backward? In, in philosophy, in metaphysics, in psychology, I mean, name your field, time is a meta problem. It's always been in physics. Is time even real? Does time exist if nothing's changing? It seems like time has a sense of flow, but where, where is that flow going and where is it coming from? Is it just perception? 
where are the past? Where is the future? Where's the future coming from? You know, these are these are basic problems in in philosophy of time. You know, we've talked about eternity. Is there a distinction between time and eternity? Does God get older? Is God timeless? Why doesn't everything just happen at once? You know, whether you're a poet, a preacher, a politician, a philosopher, you know, you're bumping up against these problems over and over again. And the history of philosophy is embedded with, with uh, reflection on, on the nature of space-time, nature of, of the good, the true, and the beautiful, the eternal, the temporal. Bart, again, is going to go to a different source. Physics isn't going to quite crack the ultimate nature of this problem. Human history writing isn't going to fundamentally get the grand narrative of the universe. We write histories, right? It's not going to quite crack the whole narrative. I'm the, I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come. I mean, did, any, did anybody ever think that that meant anything? <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am who I am. I am who I will be. I, I will be who I am, Exodus 3.14. Effectively, I was who I will be. I was who I am. I am who I was. I was who I will be. I will be who I was. The nature of the Hebrew grammar there is, is ongoing action over time. Bart exegetes the Old and the New Testaments, the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures, I think more rigorously than has ever been done to show that Christ is time. How can that be? Well, the triune, give it awayness, this ongoing, give it giving into others this ongoing manifesting of the divine love for others that's then extended outward to a universe that's ex nihilo that's that's lost on its own that is is drifting in space as a pale blue dot god coming and loving this world god redeeming this world god being patient with this world Christ willing again and again and again to accept this world and suffer the consequences for it. This is what drives time forward. Mm. It is finished, Christ cries on the cross. What's finished? It, all, everything. What more is to be done? If there's nothing left to be done, why does time even keep going? Why isn't the cross just the end of history, end of world, blip, story, universe, done? It's because God wants to keep rolling more and more others into this love, into this grace, into this koinonia, into this triune relationship. Christ has a special role in this as the electing God, as the elected man to suffer for this world, as, as the messenger, as the witness, as the word of God to this world. Time is flowing to this world because of the love of the triune God manifested in Christ. 
God is coming to this world again and again, not in a self, not in a process of Hegelian um, kind of self-actualization. God's growing up and wants to mature and is dating the world so that he can kind of figure out more about himself. <laughs> like God's not stuck in the high school syndrome, right? God is God, holy God, fully God, truly God, purely God, and can manifest that over and over again, again and again, in new ways and fresh ways and old ways, old ways and fresh ways. That is God is God of love, relationship, fellowship, koinonia, reconciliation, redemption, grace, truth, beauty, peace, love. Keep it going, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why this world is given time. That's what each, that's why we are given moments. Our, our, our sinfulness, our, our, our hostility, our alienness, this has been banished to the past. We don't have access to it. God has negated it. Nothingness is doomed to some past black hole that we cannot rewind to. From all eternity, God is moving away from nothingness moving away from loneliness, moving away from alienation, moving away from isolation. God is being present to and with for others. And God is is working all things towards Christ's universal reconciliation, redemption that, that, that already has happened and that eventually everybody will know. Even the caterpillars, the leaves, and the sequoias. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Um, and uh, so I just have one more question for you, but you're off the hook. It's a pretty easy one. Uh, well, it might not be easy, but it's it's more fun, I promise. So end every episode with really just a way for me to get more book recommendations. Um, but we're going to play a little game of Desert Island. Um, so if you were trapped on Desert Island and you could have one book by Bart, uh, so a primary source, and you can't say all of the of the church dogmatics, but if it comes in a single volume, like uh, you know two two or something like that, whatever paragraphs, a single book edition, you you can take it. Um, and uh, you're allowed to have one book about Bart, uh, a secondary source. Which two books are you taking, and why? Well, I I really would try to duct tape all the dogmatics <laughs> together and argue that it's one volume, it's one work. It has, in my opinion, the coherence of a short story. It's just really long, and I would appreciate having that that rigor and length and and sophistication with me on a desert island. But I really do love uh, three two on humanity as as being dependent and and being grateful as as. Uh, there's the section of time it really i read it again and again and it, it just slaps me around it is so impressive um and i you know i've read other things like it for a paragraph or for a page or for a sermon right bart's able to sustain this over hundreds and hundreds of very sophisticated and, and fine print pages and i just think it's a masterpiece uh of the of the of the human tradition. So I, I do love three, two. If I were to pick one secondary source about Bart, I would bring my own book because as I say uh, in the introduction, I think we should just set aside a lot of the secondary lit and just read Carl. And I, I would bring my own book to use as fire starter because I would feel bad about burning everybody else, anybody else's book. 
Fair enough. Um, oh, and I will, I'll ask you this as well, since you have, you know, your book is, has so many musical references in it. Uh, let's do two albums as well. If you had to listen to two albums on it. Well, album. one album, one album I love that's not in the book is Edgar Meyer's version of Bach's cello suites. He plays them on the double bass and it is grinding and brutal and brutal and amazing. And I love that album. <laughs> Of the of the albums that I that I employ, uh, I will say the one album that I continually am listening to is Smashing Pumpkins, Siamese Dream. That is a masterpiece as a collective whole and has a longevity in a way that some of those other albums uh, do not. Awesome. Well, yeah, again, uh, thank you so much for just taking the time to do this. Thank you for writing the book. Um, the book, again, for the listener is Crisis Time, The Gospel According to Carl Bart and the Red Hot Chili Peppers by Mark James Edwards. I really appreciate you doing this. You bet. I'll give you a little bit of power drill here on the way out. <laughs> and thanks awesome. for having me, Corey. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carl Bart Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review in your podcast app. It will help others find the show. And if you have any feedback or questions, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. The handle is at Bart Podcast. That's all for me now. I'm excited to keep learning with you all. And I appreciate you listening. See you next time.